You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We'll be in um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 34 through 44. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. Good morning, Holy Cross, and happy Father's Day to all our dads joining us this morning at home for worship. And welcome to everyone. We're so glad that you're joining us today. In today's scripture, we encounter yet again in Mark's gospel a very famous scene the feeding of the 5,000. And like many things that are familiar to us, its familiarity can be a hindrance to really understanding and grasping the, uh, the depth and richness of this story's meaning. The facts of this story are clear. We understand them. There's thousands of hungry, hungry people that come to Jesus. They don't have nearly enough food to feed everyone. And then Jesus meets those needs through his supernatural Um, providence. And it's tempting to read a story like this and say, wow, incredible. Can't believe that Jesus could do something like that, that he could feed thousands of people with two fish, five loaves of bread. What an incredible miracle working savior that we have. And if that's all that we see, I want to say this morning that we haven't gone far enough in this story. Mark shows us that the problem is far deeper than we thought. Uh, Jesus cares for us more than we could even imagine. And all of the solutions to our trouble are far more satisfying than we ever hoped for. And to show this, I want to look through three movements of this story, just working at the beginning and going through the story. We do see a movement through this narrative. First, we see a great challenge that's presented to them. Then we see a compassionate shepherd in Christ, and then finally a satisfying meal. So let's look first at this great challenge. If I asked you what challenge the disciples and the crowds were facing, it'd be obvious. Uh, You could easily show me there are thousands of people who have gathered uh, to hear Jesus teach, and they are hungry. It's getting dark. Jesus has been teaching for a while, and the disciples come up to Jesus and kind of encourage him, maybe we should send them away so that they can go and get food. They have a very reasonable suggestion that they offer Jesus. Dismiss dismiss the crowds, let them go to the surrounding towns, get some food, and we could always come back 
tomorrow. And the real challenge isn't really there. The real challenge comes in when Jesus starts to speak and respond to that. Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? What happens, what started as an inconvenience, all these people that don't have food, uh, really there's a reasonable solution. They can just go and get food. What starts as an inconvenience becomes a crisis. Jesus takes a challenge and he dials up the notch really high. In their minds, what Jesus says is not only unreasonable, it's impossible. It's an impossible command when Jesus says, why don't you feed them? Imagine Jesus is teaching at McHale Center uh, where Juve basketball plays. There's not an empty seat in the entire arena. It's getting late. Uh, Jesus' disciples come up to him and say, it's getting late. Everyone's hungry. The concessions are closed. Let's stop for the night. Let everyone go out to the restaurants. We could come back tomorrow morning and we can resume. And then Jesus says to them, why don't you feed them? Why don't you feed all of these people here in the arena? And they do the math and they realize it would be about eight to ten months of an average salary just to provide one meal for everyone in attendance. Whether disciple, whether they have this kind of money or not, what Jesus has done by creating this crisis, this situation, he's intensifying the magnitude of the situation and he's putting it on the disciples. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he suggest something like this? That's what we need to be asking at this point. Does he really desire for them to give them something to eat, for them to figure out how to do that, it would be unreasonable for them to have 200 denarii, about eight to 10 months worth of salary for them. And Jesus doesn't, I don't think he intends for them to do that. In fact, we know that from the other gospel accounts that Jesus intends to use this as a teachable moment. He's testing them, as it says elsewhere. He wants them to understand that only he can overcome what they cannot. In each of the miracles that Jesus performs, he reveals something about himself. He wants us to see the glory of God. He wants us to know that even in the midst of our most challenging circumstances and impossible situations, that nothing is ever too much for God. The same God who would feed the thousands of people with two fish and five loaves of bread is the same God who will sustain them and sustain you and I when you think that you can't go any further. He's desiring to show his disciples that that what he desires for them is not that they would be able to prove themselves to him, but that they would be able to trust in him. Not a bad idea and a suggestion for them to say, well, I'm sure we could figure this out, but that's not what Jesus is after. He's not after them coming up with a solution. He's after them getting to a point to realize that they are hopeless without him. And they need to trust in him. They've trusted him before, but trusting Jesus isn't a lesson that you and I need to learn only once and then move on to trusting ourselves or other things. Consider what we've already learned in this series. They have watched Jesus cast out demons. They saw him calm the storms. They have seen him exercise authority over sickness and death. They know what it's like to trust him in those areas, but he's taking them now deeper. 
Can you trust me in these new situations, in these new circumstances? Can, do you believe that there's absolutely nothing that I can't do? Their natural instinct is to trust Jesus, see him do an amazing thing, and then revert quickly back to trusting themselves, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-dependency. But trusting God for us is a, well, it's a, it's a practice of the heart. It's a practice of the will that we develop so that we can apply trusting Jesus to our ever-changing world that is before us. We're not meant to trust Jesus once or in the early days of our relationship with him and then figure out how to live and, and go on in our life beyond that. See, Jesus will use countless circumstances, many of them recorded right here in the gospel account, to show his disciples and to show us that we're very good at trusting Jesus and then quickly moving on to trusting something or someone else. Our inability to understand what Jesus is doing in the moment or the difficulty of his instruction does not overrule our need to trust him. You see, if we can only trust Jesus as far as we can throw him, so to speak, which means we trust him as far as we can understand what he is doing, then we will never truly trust him in our day-to-day. We'll never be able to walk with him in a faithful relationship. Because if we continue to calculate, well, this is what I think he can do, or this is what I think he's capable of doing, or this is what I would do if I were in that situation. We'll never be able to fully trust him. He's, he is inviting us to trust him beyond what we can understand. Beyond what we can see and think. The disciples don't understand what he will do. They can't anticipate clearly what he is about to do. And he wants to show them that, he, that they can trust him. And that's the great challenge that they face. It's not about feeding people. The great challenge is, can he do whatever he wants to do? And we face that same challenge every day. The challenge to trust in Jesus that he can overcome what we cannot. That he can overcome the challenges that we cannot face. That he can overcome the situations where we have just simply run out of steam. Where we cannot go on. And we can trust him because he is a compassionate shepherd. He loves us and cares for us. He's able to meet our needs. He knows our struggles. That's where we move next in the story. We see the compassionate shepherd. We're told that when Jesus saw the great number of people that have gathered on the shore, he is filled with compassion, as the scriptures say, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what imagery pops into your mind when you see this, that he was filled with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd? Probably a a nurturing image, I would suspect. A nurturing image of Jesus, the shepherd, who has this white robe, who gathers these young sheep in his arms, comforts them, uh, cares for them, protects them. A tender Jesus holding these weak sheep. And that is not a wrong image of the good shepherd in Scripture, but after consulting with a handful of commentaries on this subject, there's something else entirely going on here in this passage. Whenever the Bible references 
this phrase, a sheep without a shepherd, it's almost always referencing a political or military leadership. By alluding to this phrase, Mark wants us to see something. He's alluding to the fact that Jesus has not come into the world to be merely a comforter of those who are hurting, but to be a conquering Savior that defeats our greatest enemies, restores us in all of our pain, and leads us to safety forever. What a great picture that is to see. And we see that here. Matthew affirms this in his telling of the story when he tells the story with adding this small detail in Matthew chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. Jesus was the compassionate shepherd. It is meant to elicit images of not simply a friend who comforts us, but a a military hero who fights our greatest battles. He fights for us, defends us, and defeats our enemies. The feeding of the 5,000 was not for the purpose of having this benevolent social justice picnic on the hillside, but the start of a revolution against the powers of sin and death and all, that thing, all the things that oppress us, the spiritual and the physical. Why waste ink on a miracle like this? Why would Mark tell us this story? His purpose is not just to jot down history so that we would be amazed by this story and say, Wow, I never knew that happened. What a great thing. I don't know anyone who could do something like that. Jesus must be incredible. It's much more than that. He wants us to see something more about Jesus. At the center of it all, center of all this conflict, all this difficulty and crisis, is a picture of Jesus who sees a hungry crowd and is able to look past their current trouble to what is of greater concern. What's of greater concern for these people is that they are people without purpose. They are people without a leader, without direction, without hope in the world. And their empty bellies are merely a picture of their empty souls and their hungry hearts. For something that they long for and have an appetite for that the world has never been able to satisfy. And Jesus looks on them and says, the world has not been able to satisfy you. You are like sheep without a shepherd, without protection, without comfort, without satisfaction. And Jesus takes the opportunity to teach these people not how to cook, not how to have a picnic, but to look beyond their circumstances in faith to the one who is able to do what they cannot do. Will you get this story? Will you catch this story for yourself? Will you be able to look beyond your circumstances? Can you look beyond your troubles? Can you look beyond your burdens? Can you consider what is difficult in your life today and see that Jesus is inviting you to look beyond all of those things and to trust in him who sees your struggle and has great compassion for you. 
That where you feel hopeless, he desires to give you hope. Where you feel unprotected and vulnerable, he desires to give you strength and confidence. Where you feel nervous and anxious, he desires to give you peace. Looking beyond your circumstances to him who is able to fill you with the fullness of God. He's inviting you to trust in him, the one who can do all things. The very things that you and I cannot do. And so Jesus has created an impossible situation for his disciples so that the only way to get better is through the mercy and compassion of Jesus. He forces the situation so that if any hope would come, it would come through him. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that our physical needs are unimportant to Jesus. That would be absurd. After all, he, he feeds the crowds. He heals the sick. He calms the storm. He rises the dead. But, but, but he doesn't come teaching, be hungry less, be uncomfortable less, be sick less. He does come saying, focus on me more. Look beyond those circumstances and fix your eyes on me who can do what you cannot. Faith in one sense is a gift from God, but faith in another sense is a practice. A practice of taking hold to, of God who has taken hold of us. A practice of believing and resting in the things that God has told us to be true. No matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's of spiritual force or natural affliction, Jesus can do what we cannot. And after teaching these things, that's when we come to the feast. A satisfying feast is what we are told happens. A satisfying feast, finally, the turning point in this story happens when Jesus looks upon the deficit of his disciples and of the crowds and he fills them full and satisfies them. Mark is careful to tell us this detail. See again in our passage, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. The meal provided by Jesus does not just merely tide them over until a better meal could come. I've been in situations like this, I'm sure you have as well, where maybe you're traveling, maybe you have, through different circumstances, have had to skip a meal, and you grab whatever you can to tide you over, to hold you over until you can have a meal that satisfies your cravings. You grab a granola bar, a handful of almonds, a piece of fruit, maybe something more indulging. But never will you say, by taking those things, that hit the spot, I am fully satisfied. When Jesus fed the crowd, they were completely Satisfied. Every single one of them, not a one of them was left still wanting. Their appetites were not only curbed, their appetites were satisfied fully. When Jesus fed the crowds, he blessed them immensely. And the vocabulary in this passage has a purposeful resemblance to the vocabulary used at the Lord's table in Mark chapter 14 and elsewhere. And in John's retelling of Jesus' um, feeding, he calls himself the bread of life, which satisfies our hunger and our thirst. 
Mark wants us to know that Jesus' provision was clearly complete, total, satisfying. Not partially satisfying, not just partially satisfying for some, but abundantly satisfying, so much so to the point they even had a lot left over. While eating bread and fish might seem like a not like a lavish banquet for some of us, it symbolizes the satisfaction in Christ for the cravings of our soul. The Apostle John tells us this. He saw it in this way when he records this miracle. He records the word of Christ that we repeat here every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus says to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Because the bread of life satisfies us because it is Jesus who gives himself to us in such a measure that we will never be hungry or thirsty again for the things that our heart longs for. Jesus is always abundantly more than you and I could ever need. Now, Christians who follow Jesus will eat again, and Christians who follow and believe in him will get thirsty again. But Jesus is wanting to tell us something about himself. It is how his compassionate act of grace and his work of mercy satisfies us, our soul in the way nothing in this world can. Let me show you in another way from John 6, starting in verse 47. Here's what God's word says. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the word is my flesh. Now here's what Jesus is telling us. You and I have a hunger inside. You and I have a craving, a deep thirst within us that if goes unsatisfied, we will die and be dead forever. But if that appetite is satisfied, then we will live and we will live forever even though we die. And Jesus is saying he is the bread and he is the drink. He satisfies not because he is this snack that gets us through life on our journey to something better. He is the feast that alone can satisfy. It truly is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And without Jesus, we have nothing. Don't you see this? He is saying there's a longing in your heart, a longing. We see these principles no clearer than at the cross where Jesus died. It is, he, it is here where he pours out his compassion on us, where he sees that we are ones that are afflicted, that we have a craving to be desired and to belong and to be loved and to be forgiven and to have a purpose and a hope. And we have looked everywhere in the world to fill that longing, but only Jesus can satisfy it. And so when he dies on the cross and he reaches out his arms, he cries out, it is finished. What is finished? 
the work of our satisfaction. Some of you are starving. Starving. Because you're not feasting on Christ. You are looking to the buffet of life, feasting on what this world offers for you to feel special, complete, valuable, loved, equal to others, equal in your own eyes or valuable and dignified in your own eyes. You're looking to the world to validate you through your accomplishments, through your possessions, through your looks and your personality, through your acquaintances and your career. You're looking to the buffet of life to satisfy your loneliness or your fears or your anger. You're looking to the buffet of life to make you feel safe when it comes to your health or your finances. And Jesus says, not only will that food keep you hungry forever, but that food will actually kill you. It will make you sick and you will die. My friends, Jesus will not look at our sickness or our hunger from a distance. He is a compassionate shepherd that doesn't look from a distance, but he leaves his glorious home from heaven and he becomes human. He empties himself of all the things that satisfied and he humiliated himself to become like us to the point of death. He becomes our sin. He clothes himself with our unrighteousness, with our hunger, with our thirst. And even as he hangs on the cross, he cries out and says, I am thirsty. And his thirst was never satisfied. So that by believing in him, you and I would be satisfied forever. And he dies. He rises from the grave in triumph. He sits on the throne today, ruling over all of creation in glory over our lives today. And he says, look beyond your troubles. I can do what you cannot do. And he did all of this to fill us with himself to meet our needs with his fullness. And he has done it so that you and I can come to him at any moment and receive his compassion. Why waste another minute? Come to him. Come to him now and feast.